Thank you so much for joining us for tonight's Connect Conversation, a program conducted by the Idaho Humanities Council. If you're not familiar with our organization, I encourage you to check out our website, idahohumanities.org. Like to remind you all that you may submit any questions using the Q&A feature located at the bottom of the screen. Located with me tonight is Kathy Aiken from University of Idaho. It is an honor to have you with us tonight and I turn it over to you. Well, thank you and welcome everyone. It's great to be talking about history, even to folks that I can't actually see. Um, this is not the way I would prefer to talk about women's suffrage, but I guess I'm glad to be talking about it in any venue. So Idaho's history with women's suffrage really has two components. It has an early statewide component that involved constitutional amendment to Idaho, and then it has a ratification of the 19th Amendment that we're celebrating the centennial of um, this year. And so both of those stories are stories that I want to tell. They're things that people have written about, especially a Boise State historian, D.A. Larson, but only about 50 years ago. And when he did that, he was writing as many first women's history pieces were just to tell the story and he didn't do what we think is important now, talk about what we call intersectionality, how gender, race, and class combine for stories. And he also didn't really put the suffrage story into its political context. So those are the two goals I have for tonight, to try to make those connections that he didn't make and then tell the story. So Idaho is one of the early suffrage on a statewide basis, and we can look at the next few slides. So in the West, starting first with Wyoming, and then the next side is Colorado, and then I think it takes two clicks to get Utah, I don't really know why, and another click Idaho in 1896. So Idaho, often known as such a progressive state, was the fourth state in the Union. Um, to grant votes for, for women. And it did that in a relatively simple way on some levels and in a complicated way on the other. So next slide. And the next one too. So Abigail Scott Dunaway and Mayock Wright Hutton are probably the best known Idaho suffrage workers from a national standpoint. Abigail Scott Dunaway um, published the first really important suffrage newspaper in the United States and was very well known um, among suffrage workers and was an officer in the National American Women's Suffrage Association. But she lived in Custer County in Idaho from 1887 until 1894. And she even gave a speech in favor of suffrage at the Idaho State Constitutional Convention that a lot of people say was the best speech at the whole convention. And her argument was what we call a state rights argument that women deserve the right to vote because they were people and that's what happens in a democracy. She talked about the fundamental principles of liberty upon which the government of the United States was founded. So um, very much in the, in the vein of, of equal rights. Mayock Wright Hutton 
was um, came to the Silver Valley in the Coeur d'Alene when she was only 23 years old. Um, she was a cook in mining camps and really was working class. And if you look at this photo, you may not be able to tell, but she was weighed well over 200 pounds and she wasn't, according to a lot of other suffrage workers, particularly ladylike. And so both of these women who had strong reputations as suffrage workers around the country, Idaho women were really reticent about having both of them involved in suffrage because they were afraid that their strong personalities and the nature of their arguments would detract from opportunities that women hoped to have at suffrage. So if we see the next slide. So the kind of suffrage workers in Idaho that people thought would be successful were people more like Rebecca Mitchell, who was from Blackfoot and was a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. As the name indicates, it's probably the most famous um, group of women working for prohibition. And oftentimes women associated the suffrage with prohibition because they thought if they achieved the right to vote that they would be able to enact suffrage legislation. And she certainly fit in that category. Or Annette Bowman, the other woman in this photo who was one of the first four professors at the University of Idaho. She's a professor of art um, and very kind of straight-laced. Or people like Eunice Bondathy, who was the secretary of the Idaho Equal Suffrage Association and a prominent Boise um, person. So these people who were primarily upper middle class and upper class and all white women were at the center of suffrage. And that was really true across the country. So we see the next slide. And I think this quotation from Ida Weaver talks about the issue. It is unfeminine to cry out for justice when an ignorant foreigner or a debased wreck of a man can vote to tax an intelligent woman's property to sustain an almshouse which he helps to fill. It, is it right to class a large number of her wage earners, women, and property holders with Indians, idiots, and lunatics? And it's pretty clear that this is a racist notion on the part of a woman suffrage advocate in Idaho and also a socioeconomic um, concern about lower class men. So basically what a lot of white women argued in is the part of the suffrage movement across the country that for a long time we ignored is that if people of color and poor people and drinkers and others can vote, surely your own wife or mother or sister ought to be able to vote. So it had really a racist and, and class element to it that we sometimes um, ignore. So those women who were middle class and, and prominent um, members of Idaho society began to work especially hard for suffrage because in 1895, the Idaho legislature, both the House and Senate, passed um, amendments to the Constitution 
that could be then voted on by the public in the general election in 1896. So they did that in the legislative session of 1895 and the election was obviously in November of 1896. So it's a really short turnaround. So the first Equal Rights Association meeting was held in Boise in July of 1896. And you can imagine what Boise was like in July. It was every July, it was incredibly hot. Try to imagine traveling from Franklin or Blackfoot or from Wallace or Bonners Ferry to Boise in July in 1896, especially if you were a woman and not accustomed to that kind of thing. Um, they, most of these women had never run a meeting. Um, there's a lot of correspondence in the State Historical Society as they try to figure out even how to rent a hall. Um, so they really are starting at the very beginning. And yet they organized, and I think this is the important part, an incredibly efficient and ultimately successful campaign. Um, they decided to try to downplay the Prohibition Women's Christian Temperance Union part. And they also decided to downplay the Abigail Scott Dunaway equal rights kinds of arguments and to just make middle of the road kinds of arguments. They sent 7,000 copies of various resolutions to people around Boise, around the state. They wrote to every clergyman in Idaho they sent the letters in plain brown envelopes so that people at the post office wouldn't know what the clergymen were receiving. And so that the clergymen would open the envelope, not knowing that they were from the suffrage association and urge them to talk about women's suffrage from their pulpit. They sent 12,000 leaflets. They sent 50,000 one page flyers. And this is all a lot in 1896. And at the time of the voting, they had a table at virtually every precinct voting place in Idaho, where they asked out sandwiches and coffee and urged people to vote. That was legal to do in 1896. So that part is an important part of the story. If we can see the next slide. The part of the story that people haven't um, told until just recently involves the issue of silver. The election of 1896, as you might all recall from high school history, is one of the most important elections in United States history. It's on a par with the election of 1860 or the election of 1932, or I might think the election of 2020. Um, it's an important election because William Jennings Bryan is nominated on the Democratic Party and he has a very progressive and populist platform. And a lot of business interests in the country feared that if he was elected, the entire economic system of the United States would be at jeopardy. And especially they were worried about his idea and the prominent idea of the Democratic platform in 1896 that had been a populist idea for a number of years, the free and unlimited coinage of silver at a ratio of 16 ounces of silver to one ounce of gold. And the crux of this is that the United States throughout most of its history based its currency on the gold standard and if free silver were enacted, it would expand the amount of currency. 
And if you expand the amount of currency, that's really good for debtors. And a lot of farmers in Idaho were debtors. And so they were interested in the free and unlimited coinage of silver. In addition, I just don't need to tell anyone on this call, silver was a very important commodity in Idaho and an essential part of Idaho's economic um, system. And so even wealthy people in Idaho were in favor of free silver because they thought that silver mines, especially in the Coeur d'Alene, would benefit from this expansion of the currency based on silver. And so in 1896, that's the main topic of conversation throughout Idaho. So much so that Fred Du Bois, who was the Republican senator from Idaho, when the Republican National Convention nominated William McKinley, and he came out in favor of the gold standard, Fred Du Bois walked out of the convention and basically decided not to support the Republican Party. So free silver is incredibly important. And you can see by looking at this slide, what an overwhelming victory William Jennings Bryan won in 1896. Um, and as I said, this is the progressive kind of radical candidate in that year, the one that people in the East were really afraid of. It says much about Idaho that, that this was how the vote went. And it certainly was where all the political conversation mostly in 1896 was. So to put it really simply, women's suffrage, which was a down ballot issue, kind of got lost in the shuffle to a degree, not really helped, I think, women in a, in a number of ways. So if we can see the next slide. So the results, 29,516 men voted, 12,126 in favor of women's suffrage. And the next slide, 6,282 opposed. Every county in Idaho, we can see the next couple of slides. Um, favored women's suffrage, except Custer County. Uh, no, back, back, yeah, thank you. Custer County, which is a mining district. Mining districts tended to have the smallest margin in favor of suffrage because miners liked liquor and they didn't want to vote for women's suffrage in case women would in fact be successful at initiating prohibition and would limit their liquor. 77% of the men in LDS, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints districts voted in favor. The biggest majorities were in Mormon counties in Bannock and Bear Lake and Bingham and Casha and Fremont counties um, because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was one of the strongest proponents of votes for women. So this is a, um, a victory, but it called in, was called into question by the Idaho Board of Canvassers because you could look at the number and someone just asked this question. So if 29,516 men voted, do you need to figure what is a majority of that number or a majority of the number of people who voted on the suffrage amendment with, with down ballot? 
And the Idaho Board of Canvassers said you had to do the former, that you needed to have a majority of the 29,000, which 12,000 would not be. So if we can see the next slide. So suffrage advocate Kate Green, nope, that, thank you, um, went to the Idaho Supreme Court with the case against the State Board of Canvassers, arguing that the women's suffrage amendment, the Idaho Constitution had in fact been successful because it had the majority of people who voted for that. And to very many people's surprise, three prominent Boise attorneys volunteered to pro bono take women's side before the Idaho Supreme Court. So Miles Pate, who was a famous Boise attorney, James Hawley, who later became governor of Idaho, and William Bora, probably the most famous Idahoan even to this day, all took the case pro bono, and they were victorious in December of 1896 when the Idaho Supreme Court ruled unanimously that you couldn't count as electors people who didn't vote for something, and so since the majority of people who voted for the amendment, men who voted for the amendment, voted in favor, women's suffrage was successful. So that had some impact on the electorate in Idaho. For example, at the next election after 1896 and 1898, Parmil French was elected state superintendent of public instruction the first woman elected to a statewide office. And if we can see the next slide. Three members were elected to the House of Representatives, Clara Campbell, Hattie Noble, and Mary Wright, all elected in, in 1898. Um, two more were elected in 1908, one in 1914, and one woman in 1916 and one woman in 1918. So it's some change in the nature of the electorate, but not a huge number. In addition though, and this was true of all of the states in the West where suffrage was enacted, Idaho be, was often turned to as an example of how if women achieved the vote, it didn't create the end of life as we know it. So if we can look at the next slide. So this first, just that one. So one of the things, the governor of Idaho, James Bradley, who was elected in 1909, published 20,000 copies of Greeting from the Enfranchised Women of Idaho, where he and others talked about how Having women as part of the electorate had been a good thing um, and that it was had a positive impact on politics in Idaho and it was primarily designed to encourage voters in the state of Washington to approve suffrage. In addition, 37 very prominent Boise businessmen wrote letters to people in Oregon when they were talking about women's suffrage where they indicated that women in the electorate was a powerful force for good government and that it benefited Idaho business to have women vote. And if we can see the next two clips. And in addition, 
the National American Women's Suffrage Association published two pamphlets, Women's Suffrage in Idaho and Idaho Speaks for Herself, where they touted Idaho as an example of how beneficial it was um, for women to vote and that there were no negative results from having that happen. So Idaho really was held up as, a, as an example for suffrage in um, the rest of the country. So that's the 1896 story in Idaho. The story with the 19th Amendment ratification, which takes place, as you know, in 1920, is very different. And let's see the next slide. So this is Margaret Roberts. She lived in Boise. She was a member of the Columbian Club, which still exists and was the premier, most elite women's organization in all of Idaho and certainly in Boise. She later became the first librarian for the Traveling Library in Idaho. She was the first state chair of the League of Women Voters. She was a very prominent Republican and she took the lead in urging, as you'll recall, in order for the 19th Amendment to go into effect, two-thirds of the states, 36 states, legislatures had to ratify it. And so where the 1896 was the situation of Idaho voters, the 19th Amendment is a situation where this legislature needs to ratify it. So she is the primary mover and shaker and a Republican working for that. So we can see the next slide. Oops, not, well, that's fine, just leave it. William Bora, who's the hero of 1896 because he wins the court case, is the villain, I suppose, of the situation in 1920. Bora, who was elected, as you all probably know, went to the United States Senate in 1907, was the per first person to introduce what we now call the Susan B. Anthony Amendment in the United States Senate. He did that primarily because Mayock Wright Hutton, the minor lady that we saw at the beginning, in the meantime, she and her husband had struck it rich at the Hercules Mine, and so she was a wealthy Republican, and she urged him to, um, to present the amendment. It failed in committee, and Bora argued, well, that was kind of an educational thing. In March of 1914, the amendment got to the floor and William Boris spoke. When you look at the congressional record, if you've ever seen it, it's this fairly big volume with tiny little print and columns. He spoke three pages of the congressional record. Bora it goes on and on, all about how wonderful women voting in Idaho had been and how it had been a terrific thing. But then in the end, he opposed the amendment. He opposed the amendment because he didn't believe that it should be a national part of the constitution, but rather that it was a state's rights issue. Well, I don't have to tell anybody in the situation we find ourselves in, in September of 2020, in American history, just about every important story is a story that involves race, and this is no exception. William Bora and others were opposed to 
a national amendment that granted women the right to vote, primarily because Southern senators opposed that amendment. And Bora, in particular, didn't want to anger Southerners because he was, as many of you know, very interested in having the United States join the League of Nations, and he didn't want Southern senators to not vote for that. And Southern senators recognized that if the 19th Amendment passed, because the 15th Amendment had given Black men the right to vote, that Black women would be able to vote as well, and they wanted to prevent that at all costs. And Bora recognized that. And quite frankly, Bora really wasn't interested in Black women voting, but he also said that he really had no particular desire to bestow suffrage on Japanese or Chinese women in Idaho, California, or Washington either. So it really is a, a racial thing. He said, as the slide indicates, I believe it to be both inexpedient and unwise. This is the most impractical, impossible way in by which to get women suffrage in this country. And he claimed it was a state's rights issue, which is code for an issue involving race in many instances, particularly in Bora's situation because he favored a national amendment for prohibition. He argued that that was an interstate commerce question and therefore a national amendment was, was okay. So in March of 1914, after his speech, the amendment failed in the United States Senate and the pressure on Bora increased. In 1916, Bohr wrote the Republican National Platform, and in it he advocated for states approving suffrage individually and against um, an amendment to the, to the Constitution. And even when Margaret Roberts, that prominent Republican, said to him, this is going to hurt you with Republican women in Idaho and with some Republican men as well, he maintained that the amendment was the, was the wrong thing. Harry Chapman Cadd, a name you probably are familiar with, who was the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, said to Margaret Roberts, every other senator in the West was in favor of the suffrage amendment, and that Bora was more responsible for this problem than, than, than anybody else but he continued to side with what were primarily Southern Democrats, um, despite pressures from Republicans in Idaho and, and, and elsewhere. On February 10th of 1919, the amendment was voted on in the United States Senate again, and it lost by one vote, Bora's vote, and so, the National American Women's Suffrage Association said, shame on the women of Idaho um, and the great free West that Bora has done this and um, continued to push on, on, on Bora. Eventually, as you know, the amendment passed in, in Congress in June 14th of 1919, and then it needed 36 states to ratify it. 
Well, since Idaho was an early suffrage state, people thought Idaho would be quick to be one of the states to ratify it. But the Idaho legislature was not scheduled to meet until January of 1921. And so Perry Chapman Catt and the National American Women's Suffrage Association pushed hard on Margaret Roberts and on others in Idaho to call a special session of the Idaho legislature to vote to ratify the amendment. And Margaret Roberts said, well, that's just not possible. We can't get that done. And Carrie Tapman Catt said, not good enough. She said, surely the women of Idaho must realize their relation to the national problem to some degree. They must know that they elected a man to the United States Senate who deprived the women of this country for two years of the vote. And she also said some very unkind things, um, including calling Bora eccentric. And for Margaret Roberts, that went a little too far, I think. And she defended Bora. And Terry Chapman Cat wrote back, I'm sorry if I offended you in my remarks about Senator Bora being eccentric. I can't take it back because that's the mildest adjective that I have in my dictionary with which to describe him. I mean, he became the focus of sort of anger on the part of women across the country. And he was the only really Western senator who opposed the, the, the amendment. The governor of Idaho, David Davis, said um, it would cost too much to call a special session, a typical Idaho argument. And in addition, the Idaho State Capitol was being um, renovated at the time. And so the governor said, we don't have any place to meet. Carrie Chapman Catt wrote, surely there is some building in Boise that's big enough to accommodate the Idaho legislature so they could have this meeting. And Carrie Chapman Catt said, I'll come to Idaho and I'll bring a number of other prominent members of the National American Women's Suffrage Association to convince you people in Idaho to do what you're supposed to do. Well, Margaret Roberts was aghast. We know in 2020, and that was certainly true in 1920, Idahoans like nothing less than they like having outsiders come and tell them what to do, Margaret Roberts wrote. If you come here and try to push Idaho around, we'll never ratify the, the amendment. Stay away. Don't hold a, a, a rally. We've got the governor friendly and some other people friendly, and you'll jinx everything if you come. They continued to pressure Bora, who was certainly in a position to urge the Idaho legislature to have a special session. And he refused to, to do that up until the end. Finally, the governor called the special session and Idaho passed the amendment. We can see the next slide. On February 11th, 1920, um, Idaho was the 30th state to ratify the amendment. So here we were so early in suffrage and one of the last states to, of the 36 states needed to um, ratify the amendment. It all became so nasty that Margaret Roberts even 
said that, well, part of the problem was that Carrie Chapman Cap must be a Democrat, and that explains why she was giving Boris such a, such a hard time. Um, she got very disgusted, Roberts, with the whole thing, so much so that well, she wrote this section of Ida Husted Harper's History of Women's Suffrage, which remains kind of the main source. And she only wrote a page and a half about everything that happened with with Idaho. And she became very disenchanted with, with politics and also disenchanted how little women having the vote actually changed the nature of Idaho politics. So the next slide. So what does this all tell us? First, that's not there. Women in Idaho struck this balance between these rights-based um, arguments like taxation without representation and citizens of the United States have the right to vote and temperance arguments for suffrage that were not popular among a lot of um, mining areas. And because of that, they were able to gain support in both mining districts and Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints district, which is no small feat. I mean, these are parts of Idaho, <coughs> excuse me, that really have nothing in common. And yet these women had enough political acumen to pass their arguments in such a way that they could appeal to both of those. And I think that's one of the pieces that have been lost in a lot of the studies of Idaho history um, in the 20th century and now in the 21st century that um, women were politically astute in this situation. Next slide. Also, and I think this is always true, but sometimes we ignore it in Idaho history. National conversation shaped state politics, especially the next click, I think. Currency reform, this whole notion of free silver is something that historians have ignored for over uh, 125 years. Issues of race, are often um, ignored in Idaho. Um, and certainly race was important in the women's suffrage campaign. Although the best I can tell, Indians men who could vote in 1896 on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation voted in favor of, of suffrage. So that's an added complexity. And certainly the issue of states' rights, which is a, is a constant piece of um, American political conversation from before the Civil War till now. And this national context is an important part of this Idaho story. Next slide, please. But the most important takeaway is that I, I, I looked at every Idaho history conversation book about women's suffrage. And the first place, they usually only have a sentence or two that Idaho women got the vote in 1896 because men were beneficent and that kind of thing. Um, and I think it really ignores the fact that Idaho women engaged in this incredibly almost 
spectacular campaign for women's suffrage that with very limited resources and a very short window in which to get approval of the, the suffrage amendment, um, they were able to, to accomplish that and they did that organization. I mean, they certainly had some male allies like William Balderston, who was the editor of the Idaho Statesman, but they primarily organized this effort on their own and managed it across a huge geographic space that is Idaho at a time when transportation and communication was incredibly difficult. And I think that we should um, admire and give them credit for those efforts. So that's what I have to say about women's suffrage and I if Doug helps me, I'll try to answer questions. Thank you for such a informative presentation. Definitely learned a lot on my end. You're welcome. And to open up the question, um, the question session, why was the LDS church in favor of women's suffrage? Well, they had, they had also been um, the primary movers for women's suffrage in Utah, which achieved suffrage the same year, but before Idaho and primarily because they have a lot of women members, um, especially because of plural marriage. There are a lot more women members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints than men, and they're interested in having those folks participate in, in voting, and so that's primarily why. And so Mormon Relief Societies throughout Idaho were a big part of the organizational effort. And then kind of building off of that, when you talked about in Idaho during that one election where people were voting all together and then also voting on women's suffrage, there was that giant discrepancy between the two numbers. Why did people just choose not to vote on that specific measure? Well, if you've ever, there were actually three um, amendments to the Idaho Constitution on that ballot, and they're way down at the bottom of the ballot. And if you've ever seen um, the language for a constitutional amendment, they're always kind of complicated. And it, th there would be the presidential election, but then all the other local elections and county elections until you get down to the bottom. And by then, uh, people, I think, sort of threw up their hands and went, no, I'm not, I'm not doing these. I don't really understand what these are anyway. One of them was about uh, the judicial system. And one of them was a kind of changing a, basically a, a, a grammatical sort of typo editing thing in the constitution. And so they weren't exactly thrilling. And so people didn't vote all the way down to those, to those votes. And was the special session that was called in Idaho, was that actually held at the Capitol or, or was there another spot in Boise? Um, I think they actually got into the Capitol. I think that that was just um, kind of an excuse. There weren't that many of them in the legislature at that time. And then just for clarification, was Bora um, in favor of prohibition? Oh, yes. And then do you mind elaborating as to why who's in favor of prohibition? Well, all kinds of progressives are in favor of, of prohibition. It's one of the main sort of tenets of progressivism. Um, I think they're in favor of prohibition because they think a lot of immigrants, especially Irish, um, 
drink too much. They think that um, in saloons, especially in the East, that um, bosses manipulated the suffrage because of, of liquor. Um, they thought liquor was responsible for um, um, domestic violence, for poverty, for all kinds of things. Um, remember that prohibition it prohibits the sale of alcohol. So if you already had some, if you had your wine cellar, you still got to keep that during prohibition. So it wasn't that people weren't going to drink. It's just they didn't want, especially poor immigrants to drink, I think. And it was, you know, it was such an important part of reform. They thought it would cut down crime. They thought it would just make society better. And that's why they passed the prohibition amendment. And then it looks like we have another question. Um, and it's, they're asking for you to elaborate more on why the mining districts um, weren't supportive of women's suffrage. So uh, except for Custer County, they, they passed it, but by the smallest majorities. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, as I said, because miners, um, Saloons are a really important part of minor and culture, and they were worried about prohibition. But they did have strong advocates of women's suffrage in mining districts. Um, those same kind of progressives that supported Bora and prohibition um, supported women's suffrage. And um, women had pretty strong organizations in um mining districts as as well and so they were able to squeak by there but they're the place that they had the most trouble and bora is definitely a popular figure tonight um so he's still revered in idaho to this day does his reluctance to support the 19th amendment affect his standing in time within idaho well, I don't think there's much that you're going to do. I mean, when you think in Statuary Hall, there's two statues and Bora's one of them for, for Idaho. He's, you know, the Lion of Idaho. He's the most famous Idahoan ever. Um, but he, he certainly did not enamor himself to women with his, his failure to approve this amendment. On, on his defense, though, in his own state, women already could vote. And so, uh, and he had helped accomplish that. So he, I don't think he saw um, his actions as so detrimental, at least to Idaho women. And he didn't, he thought it made sense, why not just have every state have suffrage in and of them by themselves and everything would be fine without this amendment and without making Southern senators angry. Um, and I guess I would also add that it was not a piece of Bora's history that had a lot of emphasis until recently when we all started paying attention to this again. And then it looks like we have another Bora question. Um, did he have a problem with indigenous women voting in addition to the Japanese and Chinese women that he mentioned? Um, Bora pretty much a white racist. Um, I, I guess that's the, the, the way to, to put it. Um, but as you know, Idaho's tribal people, they're not a huge population in Idaho. And so they weren't the focus of his 
um, his, his concern as much as, as Chinese and Japanese who Bora thought were, were foreign and, and brought a dangerous element to Idaho politics. And I, I also think there was a, a lot of sense among Bora and others that both Chinese and Japanese society were so highly patriarchal that women and their votes would actually be controlled by their husbands who were also dangerous foreigners and that was a concern. So kind of double stacking the vote. Yeah, yeah. And today there's a lot of younger generation, younger members of the, sorry, members of the younger generations. It's been a long day. Um, that are involved in politics today. So what was the case for younger women in Idaho during this time period? So in, in general, the Idaho population tended to be young. Um, it certainly was young in 1896 when it full of basically pioneers who came and the Idaho population has always had until recently a, a, a younger element, although most of the women that were leaders in the suffrage movement um, would be more in their 30s and 40s. And we have another question. Um, I'm just going to read it word for word. As I recall, the Idaho Senate had a fairly close vote on ratification in 1920. What was the reason behind those who voted no? Only, only six senators voted against ratification. and. Um, the reason for voting against ratification kind of run the gamut. Um, some of them were followers of Bora and thought it should be a state's rights issue, but they're also the standard sorts of issues that if women had the vote, that it might endanger families and motherhood and their um, sort of domestic sphere um, or that women were weak or that women, many of them thought women didn't have the intellectual capacity to be engaged in politics. So all of those reasons. But only six of them voted no. And then do you know how many women were elected at the local level after 1896? So I, I couldn't I couldn't count them, but when you look at them by county, a lot of women filled the the superintendent of schools or the public instruction position, which makes sense because people thought that was sort of part of women's fear educating children and that they have an interest in. There are lots of women, and I'm not sure I exactly know why, who fill treasurer positions in counties and cities, maybe because they're able to do tedious work or people thought they would be honest, but uh, there are a number of, of, of examples of that. Not very many other kinds of examples. And as you know, only Gracie Post and Helen Kennewith have been elected to the United States Congress from Idaho in 2020. So, so that's two women in 120 four years since 1896. So we have, a, we have a ways to go. We haven't had a woman governor, most states have. Um, so our, our record is not great in that area. 
And then um, do you mind speaking a little bit more to that duality of Idaho being very supportive of women's suffrage, but at the same time being that absence of women in political power within Idaho, whether it be for the federal level for the, as a state governor? Well, I mean, part of it is the strength of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who were in favor of women's suffrage, but certainly have conservative views about women and their role in society, I, I, I would say. And I, I think um, because the women organized such a, a powerful and efficient campaign, people were in favor of it. And it turned out, surprise, surprise, that women didn't vote as a block. And so all of the dangers that people thought might be associated with women voting didn't come um, to the fore. And I think women, both women and men in Idaho tend to be conservative and have um, throughout the 20th and now into the 21st century. And I think, you know, even in the United, it's, it's difficult for a woman to um, be elected to national office from any state. And then is there a location where researchers can find the correspondence between Carrie Chapman Catt and Margaret Roberts? Yes, um, some of it is in um, Ida Harper's book called, um, on women's suffrage. Some of it um, is in the State Historical Society. They have a small amount of records about the Equal Suffrage um, Association. And some of it is in Bora's papers. And another question that I have personally with like the mining district, since they kind of assumed uh, women's suffrage would, all, would also equal prohibition. And it did. did. <laughs> How did they feel about women's suffrage actually becoming a reality? Well, I mean, their worst fear, if you're a minor, your worst fear came true because not long after women achieved the vote, so, prohibition was enacted. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I think in that, that respect, uh, exactly what they feared would happen did happen. And with that, were there like any, like did people try and like oppose, oppose it after it was already like ratified and stuff like that? Like did they like lead rallies to try and remove women's voting? Nope, we don't have any really examples of that in, in Idaho, and we don't have examples of that really in the country. We do mm -hmm. have examples with Equal Rights Amendment later on, but not with suffrage, really. Um, suffrage um, turned out to be kind of an, a no-brainer for a lot of people. And, it's, and I, I guess I would also add, one of the, and people involved in politics know this, one of the benefits of women having the suffrage is that they became great political party workers for both the Democrats and Republicans. They did a lot of on the ground, grassroots organizing kind of stuff that men really didn't want to do. And so that's one of the reasons why um, I think there was not opposition. They were, they were great at doing work. Mm -hmm. And what did you think of the role of Martha Whitman as president of the Idaho Equal Suffrage Association? She was appointed the first woman regent 
for University of Idaho? So, being uh, appointed regent of the University of Idaho, my beloved alma mater and the place where I taught most of my career is really a political kind of appointment. Um, and so, it, it it's, I mean, it's a good thing to have a, a, some, we had several women early on as, as members of the, of the, of the regions, but that's, I guess, all I had to say about that. And another question is, I've heard it said women's suffrage was supported in part to make it comfortable for more women to move west. Is there any truth in that? Not really. I mean, that has been the, the reason all of the Western states had achieved suffrage by the time the National Suffrage Amendment came. And a lot of people have argued that that's the reason that it, it happened. Um, and there's not really good evidence that that's primarily true. It's primarily um, uh, the associations of working class groups and that we talked about, um, issues like free silver, um, and, and it's also, um, I think, because of, of the nature of Western politics, but not so much because as to encourage people to come. The other kind of argument a lot of Idaho historians have made is that because women were such helpmates in the pioneer period that men felt like they had to reward them for, for that. And I'm not sure there's much evidence that that's the case either. Alrighty, we are still taking questions. We have a few minutes left, so feel free to send them in. But I will read a few comments that we've gotten in as well. One person was very interested in seeing the amount of time that has been in Idaho before the 1896 vote. And then the other comment we have is, I thought it was most interesting how the Idaho Equal Suffrage Association worked to keep the 19 or the 1896 amendment vote forming a partisan issue and gained the support of all political parties, which I will also agree with. I think that's a really interesting um, tactic that they took to prevent it from being uh, one side or the other. Yeah, I think they were quite astute. And then also David Pettyjohn, who is attending tonight, did mention that Hester Spackman, who built Arringer House, was a superintendent of the schools for Ada County. So we do have a little connection there. Thank you, David, for a little tidbit of history. And when Alice Paul traveled to Idaho for the national campaign before 1920, what did she do and how was she received? So Alice Paul, um, Alice Paul was quite radical for Idahoans. Mm -hmm. That's what I will say about, about that. Alice Paul was quite radical for most Americans, in fact. But on the other hand, um, Gary Will has this article that's called um, Radicals and Other Useful Fanatics. If there's not an Alice Paul, then Harry Chapman Cat and the National American Women's Suffrage Association don't look so mainstream and moderate. So Alice Paul is incredibly important to the success of women's suffrage because she really pushed 
um, others. And she's primarily responsible for the notion of a amendment to the United States Constitution. All right, I think she's that was, a big hero of mine, <laughs> a big heroine of mine. And I think that's a good spot to wrap up tonight. So I did want to say thank you again, Kathy, for joining me tonight. You're welcome. And thank you to everyone for attending. Have a great one.